from PRX. Today on Studio 360, you go into our room and put it as a Wurlitzer organ. Turning the work of the late great musician Leonard Cohen into interactive art. You'd press one of the keys. On the path of loneliness, I came to the place of song. Every key on the organ is a poem spoken in his own voice, which is this amazing deep baritone. When art inspires art. Plus... The writing in Sweet Valley High is, um, in a word, feverish. Where have you been? I don't have to give you my itinerary, Liz. The apparently universal adolescent appeal of Sweet Valley High. There's like a fog of hormones just above the book. You open it up and there's like a small cloud that kind of erupts. Bruce, you've been with him all this time? Oh, yes. And it was wonderful. That and more is ahead on Studio 360 right after this. Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken, please. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. It's Kurt Anderson. For a while now, I've been trying to figure out the reasons behind America's giant turn toward nostalgia since the 1970s, an entertainment toward reviving and recycling old styles and looks and sounds really in every medium, movies, design, music, you name it. So before I ever heard Nick Waterhouse's songs, I read a lot about Nick Waterhouse, frankly, a little skeptically. Here's a singer-songwriter and band leader, 33 years old, who meticulously creates new music that sounds exactly like old music from the 1950s and early 60s. Interesting, but really? Then I listened to his music and listened some more and couldn't help myself. I became a Nick Waterhouse fan and saw that he had a new album coming out so invited him to Studio 360 along with his band, and here they are. Welcome. Thank you very much. Um, we're going to talk a lot. I will interrogate you. But first, so that everybody knows or has a sense anyway of what we're talking about, will you play a song? Yeah, we're going to play a song for winners right now. Okay. Savage.
That is Nick Waterhouse and company performing his excellent song for winners from his very excellent new album, his fourth, also called Nick Waterhouse. Um, so that song, uh, which I loved and, and couldn't stop moving around to, uh, sounds like one that my older brother in the early 60s might have played in his rock combo, The Fabulous Impacts, in Omaha, Nebraska. I love it, man. Um, so tell the story that I'm sure you've never told before of how uh, you, who were born 20 or 25 years after that, uh, how this came to be your music. I think a deep identification. And, uh, you know, I guess I was a little radicalized by the bad taste of the late 90s um, and what popular culture presented me. Give me some examples. Um, Blink-182, Stained. Um, Say no more. <laughs> sure, we could keep going. Okay. Sublime is like the Beatles of the town I grew up in. and um, That's Santa Ana, California? Uh, well, I grew up in Huntington Beach. I was born oh. in Santa Ana. My dad was a fireman, so I grew up in this kind of like... The thing about Orange County is, again, it's like a conglomeration of a bunch of towns, and most people think of the glamorous... Like, O.C., Newport. Newport, Laguna, yeah. Yeah. I was a little more intimately familiar with the Anaheim, Fullerton, Santa Ana. Which is what, when I was young, one thought of Orange County, California being. Yeah. That, that conservative middle class thing. Uh, and also the, the post-war boom thing where like my, my dad and my mom both moved out there with their parents because of the Korean War. And it was farms. It was kind of rural when they were young. And I think that they still had that sensibility when they were raising me. So the again, like the affluence and the, the middle-classness and maybe even like the religious extremism um, that's affiliated with that Some place. Some megachurches around there. The biggest, yeah. Uh, that was like a big part of where I was growing up and all that stuff, it didn't have a lot of um, visceral energy. Even the, the history of like the punk rock thing there felt by the time I was a kid like what that's what adults were into. And so when you found this old-fashioned music. Mm. Um, how old were you? I think I was, well, it, it kind of coincides when I started playing guitar around 12 or 13. And, um, you know, uh, everybody rebels against, like, their parents and their surroundings. And a lot of those garage, like, the fabulous impacts. I live for these records that sound kind of sinister, but when you see the photo, they were all, like, Madras-wearing My brother tops. was 12. Yeah. <laughs> And there's like this purity to a lot of these records and it goes across all the stuff that influenced me, whether it's R&B records or it's like um, true unselfconsciousness. And um, it might have also been being born in the late 80s and going into the Internet era. So and especially now we live in this like brain disease of branding and all these people who were making these songs, whether they were like from Minnesota and making some garage collectible 45 or they were in Louisiana making an R&B record. It's an expression that you hear. There's a microphone up and people are expressing themselves. Right. It, yeah. it felt right to me. So was there one, like at 12, a song you heard that was the aha? Uh -huh. Yeah, there was two. There's two songs that have been in my life since like I can remember. And it's my, my mother would play, I think it was the late 80s Van Morrison Greatest Hits. And the very first song is Here Comes the Night. Rack a deck a Everything is in that song. And then on the other side of that, it was John Lee Hooker's 
bad like Jesse James, which just scared me, like frightened me. It was more mysterious, it's like an Edward Hopper painting or something, like I couldn't make sense of it for so long. And um, once I had a guitar, I realized like those shapes, just my fingers wanted to do that. Right. So before you were uh, a performing musician or songwriter, you were DJing this kind of music? Yes. I went to San Francisco out of high school. I'd been playing in a in a beat combo for all of my teenage years. What does that mean? Like organ, drums, bass, and guitar. Oh. We couldn't get horns. And um, I was like, all right, well, I guess I'm not going to play music anymore. And I went to San Francisco State and really got my mind open by some great professors. I was working at this record shop and really hanging out. And, and the thing that was happening in San Francisco in the era that I was there, which it, it was a really special time, there was like an energy where a lot of young people were going to like nightclubs and bars and people were playing sort of like non-dogmatic old records and, and it was wild. It had this San Francisco spirit that's like different than other cities where it felt kind of bohemian and 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 you would go see DJs because they had records oh. that, that nobody oh, had. Oh, so that's what you started doing. Yeah, and, and I and I fell into that. I mean, I was 18, 19, and, and I was already like really crazy about listening to, to just finding music. So I started playing 45s, and that coincided with a big scene at the time. Like you could throw a party and two or 300 people would come. And, and then 10 years ago, you decided, by golly, I'll make a 45? Yeah, essentially to play in one of those places. And you literally pressed a 45. I did. I wanted to put it into that world that I knew. And um, some of the DJs started playing it. And uh, within a couple months, you know, I had some mutual friends that were really excited about it. And uh, I had a band all of a sudden. Uh, so this new album, um, which is your fourth, mm -hmm. uh, um, you recorded at, at this famous old L.A. recording studio with the great name Electrovox. Yeah. What's special about it and why did, was that just part of the seamless Nick Waterhouse oldness thing? It has a really nice room that um, is like the, the golden ratio for how a live band should sound in an exciting way, in my opinion. Uh -huh. The thing about that room is it's kind of like the last golden era Hollywood room where there were tons of them and they're all gone now and it's a very simple thing it's like I, I kind of described it as like the carpenter's cup like with the holy grail where you look in and it's not it doesn't look like much and then you like you just hear the reverberation and you realize you don't have to mess around with very much really so there's this history and this sentimental attachment but you think it's the real deal you can hear the sound it's like uh, you know what's the difference between uh, like real vanilla and fake vanilla ice cream you just no if I you gave, taste it yeah, yeah. and yeah. uh there's a certain sympathy that's needed for me to do my thing but my thing is also not like a fetish it's more just like listen we're gonna have 12 people playing at once we need running preamps and we need a running tape machine and it's actually pretty straightforward and uh nowadays there's a lot more post-production that goes into like what uh would be set up as the antithetical to my work. Tape machine. And you literally mean a tape machine. Yeah, it sounds really nice. So the whole recording process, making the record, is all analog for you. Um, yeah, we ended up doing, we had to bounce some stuff in Pro Tools at the very end, but we cut everything to tape. And that's... Really? 
Yeah, but that's also how I Taping learned together, how to record. together recording tape. You can cut. Yes, it's it's much easier than you think. Now recording analog again. It's not a fetish. It's not a time machine thing. It's like the difference between deciding to paint and take photos. And the texture is what is part of my expression. And when something gets that really great magic little harmonic distortion that occurs when you record something on tape and it's all it's multiple sounds being compressed to one place that's something that like it's not going to happen much longer it's really hard to to keep doing it that way like the supplies of all the equipment and the people who can run it are running out so if somebody when you're playing your song before we sp- we're talking and they just let's say they turn on their radio then and they heard that and they just absolutely assumed as i believe anyone would unless they happen to know you sure like oh that's a song from 50 60 50 years ago or whatever whatever they would think is that completely fine with you that it is to the typical listener indistinguishable from an old piece of music yeah that's fine with me do you know like i was just given a novel from 1983 as a gift and i'm reading it and i love how I'm just in it, and I'm not thinking of it as 1983, really. Um, whatever people want to do with my music as product is fine, <laughs> but I can't control it, so no, I've, I've, I've released that. No, I understand. <laughs> what song will you play as we leave Say Goodbye? Uh, let's do Wherever She Goes, She's Wanted. That feels good.
That is Wherever She Goes off the new album, Nick Waterhouse, performed live in Studio 360 by Nick and his band. Jessica Wilkes on bass and vocals, Jay Rudolph on drums, Judd Nielsen on piano, Carol Hatchett on backing vocals and percussion, Mando Durame on tenor sax, and Paula Henderson on baritone sax. Our session was engineered by Irene Trudell of WNYC. Coming up, how a series of YA novels about blonde, identical twins in California had a big impact on a schoolgirl in Nigeria. I was reading this stuff at boarding school, so I just read it on my bunk and sigh dramatically like, oh, God, imagine the things I could do. I wasn't trapped in this fortress. The transcendent power of Sweet Valley High. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. I hate Enid being mad at you, Lizzie. It's so unfair. You should have heard some of the awful things she said about you. She did? This is from the audiobook of Secrets, the second novel in the incredibly popular YA series Sweet Valley High. I could hardly believe my ears. You know, I think she's always been jealous of you, Liz. Starting in 1983, when it was Morning in America, the Sweet Valley High books followed the Wakefield twins, Jessica and Elizabeth, through the ups and downs of high school in a picturesque California town. Over the next 20 years, an astonishing number of these Sweet Valley books were published, more than 600. It spawned spin-off book series like Sweet Valley Twins and Team Sweet Valley and eventually a TV show. Come on, Scott's a college guy. Lose the sweater. But I like this sweater. Obviously. It's so... Ugh. Here. Now all you need is a bit of makeup. But I already put it on. As they say, practice makes perfect. As maybe you can tell, they were literary junk food. And you didn't have to be a blonde Californian yourself to love Sweet Valley High. Bim Aduwanmi is a producer now for This American Life. And at the all-girls boarding school she attended in Nigeria back in the 90s, the Sweet Valley books were a very hot commodity. Why can't you get it into your thick skull that Bruce likes me? It takes more than a few kisses to prove that. He's arrogant and self-centered. He'll hurt you. Don't you dare say another bad word about Bruce in front of me or you'll regret it forever. Jess, you heard me, Elizabeth. That's all. The writing in Sweet Valley High is, um, in a word, feverish. <laughs> I mean, there's like a fog of like hormones just above the book. You open it up and there's like a small cloud that kind of erupts. I was reading this stuff at boarding school, an all-girls boarding school. So I just read it on my bunk and sigh dramatically like, oh, God, imagine. Imagine the things I could do. I wasn't trapped in this fortress. <laughs> and then you get older and you think, eh, boys are terrible anyway. <laughs> My name is Bim Adewunmi. Uh, I'm a writer. I went to boarding school in a town in Nigeria called Shagamu. I went to a federal government girls' college. And so there was uh, at least a few, maybe a couple thousand at the very least, of girls between the age of about 9 or 10 to 15, 16. That's a lot of girls <laughs> to have in one place. And girls make their own fun. A good chunk of that fun was a sort of illicit library that kind of operated away from the main library. There were networks where at the beginning of term, it would become apparent that somebody had a new set of books 
And then there would be a kind of weird sign-up system, which was never written down, but was very well understood. But that's how Sweet Valley eventually emerged. It was a <laughs> it was a really great way to discover them as sort of uh, the illicit drugs of, <laughs> of the system, except they were not drugs at all. They were just really silly books. The Sweet Valley High books were written uh, initially anyway by Francine Pascal. And she created this world in this fictional town in California called Sweet Valley. Welcome to Sweet Valley High, where you'll meet identical twins Elizabeth and Jessica Wakefield. Both girls are blessed with spectacular good looks. It felt to me like an Archie comic, but a little bit more late stage capitalism. It felt very much like these people were social climbers and it was fine because everybody else was climbing around them. So why wouldn't they? Jessica sighed and asked her sister if she didn't wish they lived up on the hill like Bruce Patman and Lila Fowler. Elizabeth knew her twin would like nothing better than to live on the hill where Sweet Valley's very rich lived in sprawling mansions. You know, there's there's obviously the very, very rich. So the Wakefields are very much kind of like the middle of the road. You know, they are solidly upper middle class and that's fine. Francine Pascal understands that you need to have things that rub up against each other with a little bit of friction in order to create some kind of conflict that will then be resolved. The central relationship is between the twins, Elizabeth and Jessica. Jessica is the mischievous one and she is, you know, a little bit snobby and she is the one who is a little bit caught up on being the popular cool girl. Oh, Lizzie, do you believe how absolutely horrendous I look today? How can I possibly go to school looking so awful today of all days? If you think you're the grossest looking person in Sweet Valley, just what does that make me? Miss America? Elizabeth, on the other hand, is very bookish. You know, one of her favorite places to be is the library because she's a reader. And we all understand that readers are nerds and nerds are good. Elizabeth, I voted for you. That's nice to know. But I'm Jessica. Elizabeth's over there somewhere. Sorry. You both look so much alike. Wow. I never noticed. Your sister seems to have cornered the nerd vote. And I was a nerdy person who read books all the time. So Elizabeth felt to me like, oh, that's clearly my avatar. But a part of me also wanted to be Jessica, who really, she's a sociopath. I mean, so is Elizabeth to a lesser, less obvious degree. But Jessica is terrible. She's a snob. She is rude. She is, by any measure, a bad person. But she's also kind of cool. And so when you're 13 years old, you kind of think, no, I'm absolutely Elizabeth. Oh, but also, wouldn't it be great to be popular cheerleader Jessica um, before your common sense pulls you back? But in the moment, you think, God, yeah, that what a great life she must be living. There was stuff about school and school politics and friendship groups and mostly it was boys. Jess, do you know what time it is? Where have you been? I don't have to give you my itinerary, Liz, but I think even you could figure out the answer to that one. Bruce, you've been with him all this time? Oh, yes, and it was wonderful. I was afraid of that. The two of them aren't necessarily attracted to the same kinds of boys, but every so often they are. And that's when things get really sticky. And, you know, Elizabeth often is the wounded party who kind of withdraws, you know, with sadness. And Jessica's kind of like, ah, screw it, I'll do it. (laughs) Which, again, is very attractive because you're like, oh, my God, imagine if you didn't have to care about people's feelings. Amazing. (laughs) And Jessica never bothered herself with anybody else's feelings. Jessica? Elizabeth? Jessica, of course. Who's this? 
Oh, hi, Jessica. This is Todd Wilkins. Is uh, Liz home? Oh, Todd, I'm so glad you called. I've been meaning to tell you what an absolutely fantastic jump shot you made in practice yesterday. I was really impressed. Uh, gee, Jessica, thanks. I didn't know you were watching. Thanks. Uh, is uh, Liz around? Todd Wilkins is Elizabeth's on-off boyfriend. He was coded so clearly as solid but boring. He was a very non-threatening version of masculinity. And on the other hand, you had Bruce Patman. Bruce is arrogant, and you can tell because Bruce has a Porsche, and the license plates of the Porsche read one, <laughs> one Bruce one. <laughs> Which again, even as a child, I thought to myself, oh, he's rich. <laughs> like vanity plates? Yes, he must be rich. There sat handsome, dark-haired Bruce Patman, lounging arrogantly behind the wheel of his flashy sports car. And that was Bruce. But it's very interesting to kind of present them as viable love options, but also perfect because it matches the twins. One of them is kind of nerdy, the other one is not at all nerdy, so of course you're going to match them accordingly. Essentially, what I did with this was me, what I did years later watching Sex and the City and identifying with one of the four. It's a very useful human habit to try and find the thing that most resembles you. You know, we talk a lot about representation mattering. And on the one hand, for sure, you want to see people who look like you, of course. But half the time, what we're looking for is something we can relate to. And that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, how they look. There were no blonde people in Nigeria in my everyday life. And I would go into a bookshop and there would literally be a wall of blonde twins. But you look back and you think, my God, what insidious messaging. <laughs> you know, that the only fictional lives worth reading about are, you know, skinny blonde girls in California. Yeah, it's not a great message. <laughs> One of my favorite things about Sweet Valley High is for each imprint and there were several you know that Sweet Valley High became Sweet Valley Kids became Sweet Valley Twins became Sweet Valley University became Ordinary Sweet Valley like there were so many strands to the Sweet Valley universe you know long before the Marvel Cinematic Universe Sweet Valley was doing it <laughs> they were all over the place but for each strand the voice remained incredibly the same um, I will say though that years later when Francine wrote a sequel set in the future where the twins were grown ups and they had jobs and married and divorced and all this other stuff. I bought that book. I bought the book and I was like, I have, I have to know how it ends. I must know <laughs> because I felt such a strong kinship. I, I grew up with these girls. Elizabeth had turned the key in the Fox lock when the phone in the apartment started to ring. But Elizabeth didn't hurry, giving the internal anger and hurt time to shoot from zero to a hundred. It needed only seconds, like the startup speed of a Maserati. Except it was never at zero. Not anymore. Hadn't been for the last eight months. These are not the books that I will, you know, take to a desert island. But they were so important to me for like a brief shimmering moment. These were the books that I wanted to kind of live inside of. Bim Me is a producer for This American Life and used to be co-host of Thirst Aid Kit, a podcast about female desire. And by the way, there is a brand new Sweet Valley High graphic novel out and a Sweet Valley feature film is said to be in development as well. Studio 360's Morgan Flannery and Jocelyn Gonzalez produced that story for our Guilty Pleasures series. Is there something that you like that's unpopular or unfashionable? Or is just really surprising that somebody like you likes something like it? 
That is your guilty pleasure. So tell us all about it in an email or voice memo and send that to incoming at studio360.org. Coming up. You really feel like you are surrounded, almost being hugged by Cohen's words. How various artists inspired by the writer and singer Leonard Cohen make art about Leonard Cohen. That's next on Studio 360. If you are the dealer, I'm out of the game. Studio 360. On the 21st of October 2016, just after his 82nd birthday, the Canadian poet, author, and singer-songwriter Leonard Cohen released the album You Want It Darker. And 19 days after that, he died. On that very last album, Leonard Cohen sang, as he always had, about sexual and spiritual longing, about aging and death. But this time with a morbidity that suggested, with a wink, he was ready for what was coming. I'm traveling late. It's au revoir. My once so bright. My fallen star. Leonard Cohen had a singular pop music career, observing and philosophically ruminating on all kinds of existential themes, which is why musicians and filmmakers and visual artists are among those who continue to be drawn to him for inspiration. And for hope. That's a crowd of people in Dayton, Ohio, last week, singing hallelujah for victims of the mass shooting there. Right now in New York City, the Jewish Museum is hosting an exhibit about Leonard Cohen. It's called A Crack in Everything, but it isn't some routine display of jotted lyrics, performance costumes, concert programs, and childhood photos. Instead, it's an experiential show of new work, videos, sound installations, sculptures, and immersive rooms, all by living artists who are Cohen fans or otherwise following in his footsteps. My Studio 360 colleague Lauren Hansen, who happens to be a Canadian-American, was also influenced by Leonard Cohen, starting when she was a child. I have these memories from when I was a kid, as young as maybe seven and eight, that most nights after dinner, my younger brother and I would have to clear the dinner table and put the dishes away. And my parents would retreat to the living room, where my dad would put on a Leonard Cohen album. And out of the speakers, that rich baritone would drift into the kitchen and beckon us away from our chores, toward the stereo, which my dad would have pumped up to full volume. And my brother and I would twirl around and make up dances to these songs of love and longing. There's a piece that was torn from the morning And it hangs in the gallery of frost And because my dad brought Leonard Cohen to me, I brought my dad to the Leonard Cohen art exhibit at the Jewish Museum. Wow. Such a cool guy. That's him, Jay Hansen. He's marveling at an old photo of Leonard that greets you as you enter. We end up spending most of the day at the exhibit, exploring, listening, and watching all this art, but also talking about Leonard. What is it that first attracted you to his music? 
his, well, a lot of things. So I just liked the voice, partly because it wasn't a crooner's voice. And to me, without knowing anything about him at the time, it sounded totally authentic. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, I just loved the melodies. And most music, except for Dylan, most music you listen to, in my opinion, you, you don't really focus on the words because most of the words don't mean very much. And that's because they want you to focus on the melody or the music. And then with Leonard, what I realized was each, every one of his songs, the words are incredible. And you, you, um, yeah, you, you just start listening to the words. Suzanne takes you down to her place near the river. You can hear the boats go by. You can spend the night beside her. And you know that she's half crazy. But that's why you want to... A friend from California sent me his first album in 1974 when I was 17 and incarcerated in English boarding school. Pico Ayer is a journalist, he's a travel writer, and a novelist. He's written about Leonard Cohen, he's interviewed him, and at one point he also worked for him, writing his liner notes and programs. He really gave me a sense at that time of how I wanted to live. And again, like many dreamy boys, I'm sure, I would pore over the picture on the cover of his second album, Songs from a Room, showing his very simple little one-room house in Greece with a guitar and a notebook and a beautiful girlfriend. And I thought, that's the way to live. That's who I want to be. He, he gave us an image of what the poet's life might be like. And you want to travel with her And you want to travel blind And you know that she will trust you for you've touched her perfect body with your mind. Leonard Cohen was a poet first, so when he started making music, that thoughtful sensibility made its way into his lyrics as well. So if you listen closely, each phrase, each song, it has something artful to say. So, touch any key. Still looking. In flat, I said there's nothing left. That's cool. I hoped that you would come again. Back at the exhibit, my dad and I enter a room with this old organ sitting in the middle of it. And it's a sound sculpture that you can actually play. You can play the Well, Robert, if you, here you are again. You're talking to me at the Café de Flore in Paris. <laughs> This is brilliant. I mean, you could spend all day here. It's called The Poetry Machine, and it was created by artists and collaborators Janet Cardiff and George Burrs Miller. The poetry part comes from Leonard Cohen's 2006 collection called Book of Longing. And the machine, well, George Burrs Miller explains... Sitting on an old Persian carpet is a Wurlitzer organ, and it's basically covered with old 50s, 60s, and 70s speakers. So it's quite rustic-looking, sculptural, might be a found object even, and you don't know what it is. 
and then uh, you press one of the keys on the organ. And oh, my love, I still recall the pleasures that we knew. Every key is a poem by Leonard Cohen, spoken in his own voice, which is this amazing deep baritone. On the path of loneliness, I came to the place of song and tarried there for half. Somehow it gets inside of you in a different way than reading now it. I leave my guitar and my keyboards, my friends and sex companions, and I stumble out again on the path of loneliness. I am old, but I have no... That kind of rustling of clothes and even the rumbling of his stomach sometimes and the... the popping on, on his lips, which as a sound person, my sound engineer the other day was saying, we should really be taking those out. And I said, no, we have to leave them in because it's all about, it's all about this physical presence of him. And, and uh, you really sense it there. Like a bird on the wire Like a drunk in a midnight choir I have tried in my way to be free. There's an intimacy to this exhibit that's essential to Leonard Cohen. You feel it most in the video installations, like the one by Kara Blake called The Offerings. He described his work sometimes as reports from an interior landscape, so I kind of had that in the back of my mind when I was creating the piece. The Offerings is a looped video pulling from decades of archival footage and interviews and recordings. It's presented in this darkened and cozy viewing room where you can sit in beanbag chairs or on benches or even lounge on the floor. You can stay for as long as you like, just communing with Leonard in his own words. It's true that there is no perfect offering. And anything that you come up with is going to be, is going to be flawed. You really feel like you are surrounded, almost being hugged by Cohen's words. I think it's a great gift to be serious sometimes and to be deeply serious about ourselves, about our lives, about our friends. So that seriousness is often confused uh, as depression. But to tell you the truth, I love that feeling of, of really being in the middle of um, his thought processes and, and learning you know, what was behind some of his, his thinking and what was behind a lot of his work. I studied with a, uh, an old Japanese gentleman for many years who uh, taught a traditional form of Zen meditation. It is a very good system for locating a thread that you can follow because uh, we all get lost. When my dad and I walk into Kara Blake's viewing room, there are people all over the place, and they are watching and listening intently, their heads tilted up toward the screen like this video is a sermon and this room is their church. You know, it just has made things holy. The only way you can get that news around is through music. What, what amazes me is that he went off and did those years with a Buddhist, and yet everything you read and see about him says he was that way before he went, which is fascinating. I mean, he sounds like he's so at peace all the time from the very beginning. There was always something of a spiritual essence in Leonard's work. He was Jewish, his grandfather was a rabbi, but... 
even after he became famous in his ladies' man days in the 60s and 70s, he was weaving together questions of sexuality and desire with spirituality and religion. I heard of a saint who had loved you So I studied all night in his school He taught that the duty of lovers Is to tarnish the golden rule And just when I was sure That his teachings were pure He drowned himself in By the time Pico Ayer met Leonard Cohen in the 1990s for an article he was writing, the musician had cast off his material belongings and the trappings of fame and even women to become a Buddhist, practicing under a monk at the Mount Baldy Zen Center behind Los Angeles. I was an eager beaver writer in my 30s, and I was so excited to be meeting my hero and one of the more accomplished lyric romantic poets that I knew. So I took up various books to give him as as presents, though I expected he would have read most of them already. And I never forget, he accepted them uh, very generously, and then he said, uh, would you mind if I give these away? (laughs) His only interest was talking about philosophy, and it gave me, as a writer meeting a fellow writer, a striking sense of his priorities, that in some ways he'd left the, the world of words behind, and he'd also left the world of you know, fame and renown and uh, uh, what's on the front page of the New York Times behind. Um, and he was trying to work out what to do with uh, loneliness and sorrow. When Leonard Cohen was ordained as a Zen monk, his teacher gave him the name Zhikon, The meaning is something like normal silence or ordinary silence or the silence between two thoughts. And the essence of that name, that quietude it's getting at, it was probably very much present in Leonard before his Buddhist retreat, but he made a point of carrying it with him when he returned to the world of music making. He worked on every song easily, many, many songs for a decade to get them right. When I was young, I would turn out a new book every two years. But now I want to get the silence into them and the seasons into them and and the years, the sense of the passage of time into my prose the way he does. So although I could never aspire to write as he does, um, I was very glad to learn the gifts of patience, attention, and slowness from him. If it be your will that I speak no more And my voice be still As it was before That sense of the passage of time, it's also revealed in another video installation at the Jewish Museum exhibit. The piece is called Passing Through, and it's by the artist George Falk. Let's call it the 360 Immersive Experience of Leonard as a musician, as a performer, over the the course of his life. Fox video is also shown in this darkened and cozy room where you can lounge and look up at these huge screens covering three walls, showing Leonard Cohen at all different ages, in music videos or on stage, singing and performing in his reserved way. So a bit of time travel, too. Could you see Leonard? very, very young in the beginning of his career to the very, very 
last tour that he did, and then sort of like compressed just compressed it in just a position together and experience seeing his entire life as a performance within like fifty four fifty six minutes of time. The intention of this piece is really see him front and center, who he is, the the Leonard that we know. My dad loved George Fox video. We returned to it again and again to watch Leonard age right before our eyes through all these different songs. changes over time. The day he died, uh, we had a party at my house, and we played, I don't know, 30, 40 songs, and I started from the beginning, went to the end, and it was so cool to hear the difference in his voice. This is my favorite song. I've always felt that Leonard's great gifts as a person and as a poet and singer are for honesty and for intimacy. Again, Pico Ayer. I think that's what he offers us, that if you're distracted and confused and uh, you've got a lot going on in your life, you put on Leonard Cohen and something in you slows down and something in you gets a lot deeper. He's a silent companion holding our hand, not telling us blithely everything will be better because his hallelujah is a cold and broken one, but telling us, I'm here. And <laughs> probably I know what you're going through, he would say. Ring the bell that's still Leonard's power is a quiet one. And looking back, those quiet moments in my own family, dancing around our living room, well, they have power too. Start here? Yeah, what's this? This is really cool. It's playing Hallelujah. And you grab one of these and you can feel the humming. Grab the microphone. And you can hum along. <laughs> Not a very good hummer. That's okay. You just feel it on your bum. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have a total phobia about singing because I'm horrible. So much. So I think you inherited from me. Yes. But it's cool. That was Jay Hansen and Studio 360's Lauren Hansen, who produced our story. 
The Leonard Cohen exhibit, A Crack in Everything, is up at the Jewish Museum in New York City until September 8th. And that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our production team is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Andrew Adam Newman. Sandra Lopez-Monsalve. Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Morgan Flannery. And I'm Kurt Anderson. And it was wonderful. Thanks very much for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Fifty years ago, hundreds of thousands of kids gathered to see Hendrix, Janis Joplin, and Shanana. These stoned hippies saying to themselves, am I really seeing 12 guys in gold lame? Oh, it must be the bad acid, you know? How a 50s cover band that didn't really belong at Woodstock got famous at Woodstock. Next time on Studio 360.